Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Quiet Dawn, Matt Birkbeck. Matt Birkbeck, author of The Quiet Don, the untold story of mafia kingpin Russell Buffalino. You suggest in your book that Russell Buffalino had a hand in the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Um, I didn't really get into the Kennedy uh, assassination in depth. Uh, I touched on it. I purposely avoided it, given the wealth of material that's out there already on the uh, Kennedy assassination. And given what I was writing about, I didn't really want to take away from from everything else in the book. So, but there, I did include a couple of bits in there in regards to uh, Russell getting calls from Mexico uh, right before the Kennedy assassination, um, as well as having a role in um, shipping guns, uh, rifles, which was a story that was actually told back in 2004 uh, by Frank Sheeran, a uh, fellow who had worked for Buffalino. And you say he couldn't help but notice, but Buffalino was in good spirits when he met up with him at this restaurant a week after the murder. It says it all. Um, <laughs> you know, like I said, so much just there's a, there's a wealth of material on the Kennedy assassination. You know, as I was reporting this story out as a reporter and then in authoring the book, um, I had developed sources within the Buffalino family in northeast Pennsylvania, what's left of the Buffalino family. And... Um, these are little things that I was hearing, and all these little things ended up coming together in a variety of ways, uh, one of which was uh, info, information on, uh, on Kennedy. As a reporter, how do you develop sources within a mob family? Uh, actually, what's, what's interesting is that I was covering a grand jury in 2007 involving uh, Scranton businessman uh, Louis de Naples. Uh, uh, who was being uh, investigated for lying to the gaming board to get his uh, gaming license. And one of the chief witnesses before the grand jury was a fellow by the name of William uh, D'Elia. And he was the head of the Buffalino crime family, of what was left of it. And he, uh, and that was big news, because there had been allegations, longstanding allegations, that the Naples had ties to uh, Billy D'Elia. So as I was covering this at, for the Allentown Morning Call, and we began breaking stories on this whole gaming exercise, I actually got phone calls from a couple of people who were affiliated with the Buffalinos. And they led me to other people who shared stories with me and information. And, uh, and this was over the course of a couple of years. They also, frankly, helped me with the grand jury. For instance, I would take, the grand jury was held in Harrisburg, and for some reason they kept the witnesses in a room 
and the reporters were right there. So typically you'd, you'd shield the grand jury witnesses and uh, keep everything secret and they would have them report to a room and they'd come out. Sometimes they would call their name so it was easy, easy to identify them. Other times they wouldn't and then they would go into the uh, courtroom to testify. I had this source, just one particular source, and I would take a picture of my cell phone of the individual and I would email it. Do you know this guy? And he would identify him. And uh, a couple of those names ended up in the newspaper. So they became, so it, it, in some respects they would reach out to me. Um, in other respects, uh, I was introduced to other people and I had, they had trusted me. Uh, and it just went from there. What's it like to talk to somebody who you know is a mob guy? It, um, that's a good question. We would meet in out-of-the-way places, in diners, um, small restaurants, outside of town, outside of Scranton, or outside of uh, Wilkes-Barre. And you, you go there somewhat cautious. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you, you're, you're cognizant of the fact that you're meeting someone that's got ties to a slew of different people, you know, some of whom were in jail, some of whom have been accused of murder, and we're awaiting um, prison. This one person I met with, uh, I, I could actually name him now, his name was Frank Pavlico, who uh, was very close with Billy D'Elia, and had actually, uh, was an informant, he had been charged with Billy D'Elia in 2006. This is what led D'Elia to flip and testifying on DeNaples. He had been charged with money laundering, I believe it was, conspiracy, and then eventually conspiring to kill a witness. And his fellow Pavlico was involved with it and um, had been close with Delia and other people. And um, I would go meet with him. And he would be, he was a, he was a youngish, he was a young fellow. He was a bodybuilder and he drove a Range Rover and he'd be telling me about all these different businesses he was in. And he apparently made money and then would lose the money or be arrested, get into another business and make money again. Uh, the reason I could tell the story and tell his name is because a month or two after Billy D'Elia was released from prison in November of 2012, Pavligo uh, was found dead. And they, the official cause was suicide. He apparently had hung himself. I'm not sure if I necessarily buy that, but um, it was people like him that I was that I was talking to who either reached out to me or I had been introduced to, and um, it was uh, he turned out to be a valuable source, uh, not just to me but I also think to the uh, to the government uh, in their different prosecutions. He had also testified in the the Naples. Uh, grand jury investigation. But it would be, I mean, it was something I did because I wanted to do. You know, I mean, it was my job. You know, I wanted to find out what was going on with this because pieces were coming together with this whole gaming uh, initiative in Pennsylvania that just didn't make sense. Uh, and it started with Lewis de Naples, with him getting the gaming license. And so, uh, you know, I go meet with him and, you know, was I a little nervous at times? Yeah. Once I got to know him, I wasn't. Uh, other people, yeah. Once I got to know them, not really. But uh, it's always in the back of your mind that who you're meeting with. Why would they talk to you? They trusted me. They reached out to me. Uh, 
I was writing stories that weren't being written, written in Pennsylvania about gaming. The initiative which uh, was passed in 2004, gaming board was created, licenses were issued in 2006. I had begun writing about it in the uh, middle of 2006. Actually, I had been covering it before that, but once the grand jury came into place, a lot of questions. Um, and every month there'd be a new question about what would be going on. And at the morning call, we ended up breaking some very important stories about uh, the fact that the state police and the FBI did not sign off on the DeNaples investigation, meaning um, his background check to get a gaming license. Uh, I wrote that story. I developed another valuable source who was the former deputy commissioner for the state police, Ralph Periandi. He was outraged at the denial by the gaming board chairman at the time, Tad, Tad Decker, who said that the state police had signed off on DeNaples when they didn't. So Perry Andy called me. We would talk, and over the course of time, um, we would meet in these diners and whatnot. And he would film me, and he was retired. He had just retired too, uh, so he felt more, he felt comfortable about talking about it. Uh, but they, the stories that we were running, we wrote we wrote about uh, the grand jury. We wrote about the problems within gaming. We broke the story about Tom Marino, the former U.S. attorney, resigning. The reasons why he was re resigning for giving a, um, uh, a, uh, a referral on the DeNaples gaming license. And so- This is the Tom Marino who's now the congressman? Yes. <laughs> yes, this is the same Tom Marino who is the U.S. attorney in Harrisburg and in Scranton, who gives a reference to DeNaples, is forced to resign over it, is hired by DeNaples, paid $250,000 a year, quits that job, and then runs for Congress in the 10th, 10th District in, in Pennsylvania, wins the election with all this baggage, and then two years later is reelected. In any event, so, but we were running story after story, we were breaking news, we were, we were showing uh, how corrupt this entire exercise was, and I was getting calls from the good guys and from the bad guys. And uh, it turned out to be somewhat interesting. Now, just uh, to fill in a little bit uh, about Louis de Naples, who is he and how does the whole gaming license uh, decision-making process in Pennsylvania fit into a book about a mafia kingpin? Louis de Naples. Who, who was long dead by the time. Who was long was dead, exactly. See, now, I wasn't even thinking of Russell Buffalino at that time. This is 2007. To understand gaming, you've got to go back to Ed Rendell when he was elected governor. Um, he ran on a platform, and his, his chief issue, he was telling everyone that we needed to reduce school taxes. And the way to do it would be to introduce gaming in Pennsylvania, casino revenues. And they, we'd use that to reduce this burdensome school taxes, which had been rising throughout the state. Okay. So Rendell's elected. And then uh, Vince Fumo and Robert Mello two senators at the time, two very influential senators, were tasked with creating this gaming legislation, which actually came out of Fumo's office. And then on July the 4th, 2004, in a very controversial gathering, they passed this gaming law. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but things were in motion. We had written about this later. 
but plans were then put in motion to get certain applicants or certain people within the state gaming licenses, and one of them would be Lewis de Naples. Lewis de Naples is a powerful and very influential businessman, and very rich, by the way, who lives in the Scranton area. He had been long rumored to have ties to organized crime. In 1977, he had been charged with a, with a few other men with fleecing the federal government, overcharging them by half a million dollars for cleanup work relating to Hurricane Agnes from the early 1970s. He's tried in 1977. The case um, is a hung jury. And before they go to a second trial, he pleads out, or he, no contest, he pays a fine, doesn't go to prison, but it's a, it's a felony. A couple of years later, a fellow by the name of James Ostico is arrested and charged with fixing the De Naples trial. Ostico was the underboss to, the, to Russell Buffalino, who was the crime boss in the Scranton area. How did he fix the trial? They bribed a juror. They paid her, or they paid her husband $1,000 and like four tires for a car. Uh, but they got her to, I think it was a majority for everyone except for her, where they were going to vote guilty, and she held out. So they had to um, go to a second trial, which, which never happened because he pleaded out. Now, the underboss of a major crime family doesn't just fix a trial for anybody. But in this case, they fixed it for Lewis de Naples. And um, Ostigo's history, he goes way back with Russell Buffalino to the 1950s. So in any event, so now he's got that behind him. But never, even with that, he go, Mr. de Naples goes on to, he owns, at last count, I think it's over 150 businesses. Uh, He's a philanthropist. He uh, gave $35 million to the University of Scranton, which built a facility that they named after DeNaples' parents. Um, he also had great influence within political circles. Uh, gave a lot of money to different people. Uh, he's, so by the early, so by the turn of the century, he's an extremely powerful individual in Pennsylvania. Uh, even with these little whispers of mob ties, which never really came to the forefront. Aside from that trial, there have been whispers, but it was never anything more than that. So once the gaming legislation is passed, the Naples quickly buys the old Mount Airy Lodge, that famous honeymoon resort in the Poconos, which had been closed for a few years now and was owned by a private equity firm. And so now everyone, you know, People are looking at it and going, well, all right, he's buying this with the intention of getting a gaming license. All right, so he's basically putting the cart before the horse here. Uh, so as it turns out, two years later, he gets the gaming license. So that, um, so that raised a lot of eyebrows uh, and also had drawn, at least on my end, a lot of focus on the Naples, you know. Then now, who was he, who was he tied in with politically, who was he contributing to, and, you know, the answers that I would, uh, I would learn in the 
over the next few years from 06 until 20, 2010, uh, it was, which are in the book, uh, I mean, it was mind boggling the influence that he had, not just within political circles, but within law enforcement. As we just discussed earlier, you know, he has a sitting U.S. attorney give him a reference for a gaming license. Even with the whispers of the organized crime ties, uh, that's remarkable. He also had uh, the top state police official in the area. He had close ties with him. Uh, his name was Merritt. Uh, I believe he was a colonel in the state police. He was seen on FBI tapes constantly going into the Naples uh, auto uh, parts business, visiting with the Naples over the course of you know a couple of years. Why was the FBI keeping on? They were keeping tabs on the Naples because they were watching Billy Delia. Billy Delia, at the time before he was arrested, uh, was the he was the de, fa de, de facto head of the Buffalino crime family, and he was visiting the Naples often, as were some other members of the um, Buffalino family. So the FBI was keeping tabs on him, and uh, so they get the state police official going in and out too. Anyway, he retires, and where does he go to work? He goes to work for Mount Airy. So when you consider that, you know, not only does he have these great political contacts, uh, he's got the highest ranking law enforcement officials in his pocket. And that, that makes someone very, very powerful. So who actually had to make the decision of, okay, Louis de Naples gets a gaming license? It was the gaming board that had been appointed. The way this whole thing was set up, the gaming legislation initially was 37 words. It was like, it was a horse, it was part of a horse racing act. I forgot exactly what it was. And they gave it to Vince Fumo and his people, knowing that the Naples was going to get a license because it had been set up from day one. Uh, they had to make this legislation. Um, they had to create a legislation that would make the Naples viable. Oh, the fix was in from the beginning? It was in, it was in from the beginning. I'll give you an example. In other gaming states, such as New Jersey and in Nevada, you have a felony, you don't get a gaming license. That's it. The Naples had a felony. All right, so how do we get around that? What they did was they said, if anyone has a felony, this is in Pennsylvania now, you cannot get a gaming license unless that felony is 15 years or older. Now, by this time, the Naples felony is more than 20 years uh, old. All right. So he can apply for a gaming license. They then, and this is where I first started getting into it. The, the grand jury is going on at the time. I'm talking to different, and I developed other sources, too, within the Buffalinos. But I'm talking to a couple of folks there, and chiefly I'm talking also to the uh, former Deputy Commissioner of State Police, Rick Periandi, who told me he had issues with background checks, and he walked me through what was going on. When the gaming legislation was created, the Pennsylvania State Police, were go they were charged with vetting everybody, doing background checks, which made sense, because they're the highest uh, law enforcement authority in the state, aside from the Attorney General's office. And they had the infrastructure to do it. After the legislation was passed, Governor Rendell appoints Frank Friel, uh, old Philadelphia police officer, as the uh, first gaming board chairman. Perry Andy immediately, his antenna goes up, he knows he has issues with Friel. He had 
old intelligence on him involving possible associations with organized crime figures um, and then some other things that occurred in the early 1970s. He tells the commissioner, Jeffrey Miller, we're going to have problems with this. Now before that, their liaison to this new gaming board, as well as the Rendell administration, Captain uh, Pediak, goes to, an, goes to a meeting two weeks after the legislation's passed. And at this meeting, Rendell's chief of staff, uh, Esty, and Greg Fite, who's the uh, head of the Department of Revenue, which is running gaming, are telling people at this meeting that they've got favorite candidates for these gaming licenses. And, not gonna, and, that, and we're not going to have any problems with their background checks. It's basically a warning to the state police. Do not give us anything with any problems with these guys. And one of the people that's mentioned is Louis de Naples. Pediat goes back and tells Perry Andy and Jeffrey Miller and says that something's wrong here. This, this, this isn't what we thought it was going to be. Commissioner says, let's just stay the course. Let's just see how this thing all plays out. They do the background check on Frank Friel, and as Perry Andy had initially suggested, there are problems with him. They want to tell the governor. The governor doesn't want to hear it. We're going to go through it Friel anyway. The news of this background check or the, the results of it are some of, some of it is published in one of the Philadelphia papers, the Daily News, and Rendell goes bananas. He has, Frank Friel has to step down, Rendell's incensed, blames the state police for leaking the information. They didn't do it, but they, he blames them anyway. But now this changes the entire course of how background checks are going to be conducted in Pennsylvania. What they secretly begin to do now is withdraw the state police. They had hired a firm in New Jersey, a very respected firm, to, uh, to, do, to, to create this blueprint for, for, for gaming in Pennsylvania. The guy I wrote is, uh, is a former uh, assistant attorney general in New Jersey. His name is Fred Gushin. And in this report, he says that Pennsylvania, it's a 100-page report, Pennsylvania State Police will do all the background checks, blah, 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 blah. The report's changed. Greg Fight changes it. Department of Revenue. Uh, Pennsylvania is withdrawn. In their place, they create this new agency called BIE, uh, Bureau of Investigations and Enforcement. It's now under the control of the gaming board. So the gaming board is going to vet the applicants. And even worse, no law enforcement agency will recognize them, meaning BIE. So they won't share information. So the FBI refuses to share any of its information with them. The state police refuses to share any information. The Attorney General's office refuses to share information. So they're not getting the full picture of these gaming applicants. And it wasn't just Lewis de Naples. There was a couple of other folks, including one guy out in, uh, who got a license in uh, Pittsburgh by the name of uh, Barden, Don Barden, who had issues. So, but this was because of what happened with Frank Friel. Uh, the Rendell administration felt that they got so burned with that, it wasn't going to happen again, especially if we want a guy like Lewis de Naples to get a gaming license. There's no way in the world the state police would, would vet, you know, would, they would vet him and then, you know, not include everything that they had on him, which why, was substantial. Why was everyone so eager to give Lewis de Naples a gaming license? Because of who he was and because of the influence he had within the state. I mean, you're talking about a guy that had ties to senators, that had ties to previous governors, who had ties to, I mean, his chief sponsor in the Senate was Robert Mello. 
who had been around forever, and I believe he's in prison now, Melo, um, and had spent, he's a billionaire, and he had learned, um, at least the people up there had learned, you know, what had been set up and established years earlier with Russell Buffalino, who basically did the same thing, you know, gathered, had control of law enforcement, had control of local politicians. In this case, the Naples, I got a call, it was in 07, I think it was. I wrote a story about the FBI, state police, and the Secret Service were now investigating. They were visiting with a prisoner um, who knew the Naples. And the Naples was under investigation at the time for um, contributions to Ed Rendell and, and uh, this Katrina truck thing, which we could t discuss in a little bit, um, and a wide variety of other things. Secret Service was investigating for money laundering. And I knew it because I went to visit this prisoner and then the Secret Service had been there, along with the two other agencies. So I write that the Secret Service was, was there. I get a phone call from Washington, and it's someone from the Secret Service. And they said, you know, your story's wrong. We, we're not part of this investigation. I said, you sure about that? And I explained to them, I was there. I've got this information. I know you were there. Uh, I'll get back to you. Okay. I get a call back in about an hour. Yeah, we were there, but do me a favor. Please don't write that we were there, that we were involved in this investigation. And did you was, write it? Of course I did. I mean, it was part of the story. So you're talking about an incredibly powerful individual. He's probably the most powerful individual in the state. Uh, so he got the license? Of course, yeah. Of course he got the license. And he got it with a casino project that was far less superior to a competitor. There was another applicant up there called Pocono Manor, which um, unveiled this... Uh, a plan included a hotel. You know, with the whole idea of gaming was to bring revenue in, the most revenue in, and then turn it around and give it to taxpayers and reduce their school taxes. All right, so you've got the Naples Mount Airy plan, which was a hotel and casino and golf course, and that was it. And you got the Spokane Manor plan, which is a couple of miles away, but it wasn't in Mellows District. Um, and they were going to do a huge hotel a convention center, a sports center, two golf courses. It was in the revenues that they projected were double what Mount Airy was going to do. They gave it to Mount Airy. And the reason being was that, well, this is too ostentatious. It's not fit for the Poconos. It made no sense. Uh, so then, and then we, we did a story at that time, and that's what really got us going on this road, was that gaming investigators with BIE wanted to talk to Billy D'Elia, because Billy D'Elia had been arrested. Um, and he was the guy who was, was supposedly the Buffalino running the Buffalino family. Correct. He, was, he used to be Russell Buffalino's driver, and then his chief lieutenant, and then took over the family when Russell died in 1993. That's a great success story. Well, <laughs> if you want to think of it that way. Um, he was a very well-respected guy within mob circles. He's arrested once, he's arrested again for trying to now kill a witness, but he flips and he agrees to cooperate. And that includes the gaming investigation. Uh, only gaming investigators can't talk to him because the FBI doesn't recognize them as a law enforcement agency. So they deny it. So 
Ralph Periandi, who was then the second highest ranking um, state police official in the state, warns the gaming board, I can't tell you what's going on. It's an ongoing investigation, but there are issues with Lewis de Naples. They want to know what are the issues. I can't tell you because it's an ongoing investigation, but we're just letting you know. Well, that's not good enough. And they give de Naples the license. Before we get too far into the program, we're already about halfway. We haven't really talked about the, the Russell Buffalino that the Buffalino family is, uh, who headed the Buffalino family. So who was he? All right, Russell Buffalino uh, came to this country in 1904. He was born in Sicily. And that was at a time when other Sicilian immigrants were coming here. Um, they were coming to New York, and then they would go, some would stay there, some would go west to the Scranton area, work in the coal mines. Others would go to, to Buffalo, others would go to Detroit, others would go to Philadelphia. Buffalino's father was killed in a mining accident. They went to, when he came here, they went to New York and ended up in the Scranton area because he had already had family there. His mother died a few years later. They had moved to Buffalo. Goes back to Sicily, comes back, lives in Buffalo, and he's raised under the watchful eye of the Stefano Magadino family, which is a name most people wouldn't know about, but back in that day, he was probably the most powerful mobster in the country, given um, he, during Prohibition, he was just bringing in liquor from, Can from Canada through Lake Erie and distributing it to the East Coast and parts of the Midwest. So Buffalino's learning his trade, so to speak, from Magadino. Uh, he ends up going back to the Scranton area in the 1930s. Uh, his wife is from there and he marries into a family. The Sicilians at the time, they would um, bring families together through marriage, which was a tradition in a, in a lot of different cultures. And, and so they did it too. So he marries uh, Caroline Scandra, whose brother John takes over the reins of the crime family there at the time from another guy by the name of Santo Volpe. There's a lot of names here, but Volpe and Buffalino's uncle Charles and another guy, Stefan Latore, uh, had run the crime syndicate there from the early 1900, uh, 1900s. And that included, I mean, they ran um, different mining companies. They were big with extortion, murder, loan sharking. They terrorized everyone in that area, particularly the, the Sicilian miners. So by the 1930s, their business is mining and gambling. And uh, Russell is quickly becoming a major force. He's a very smart guy. But he also learned from Magadino uh, that you remain in the shadows. Stay behind the scenes. Don't wear fancy clothing. Don't live in a big house. Don't drive a fancy car. You know, stay out of, the, stay out of view. Just do things in the shadows, do in the background. Uh, he also learned the, um, the art of making political friends. Comes in handy. Law enforcement. Uh, so by the mid-1940s, Russell now is a major power in organized crime and has ties to New York mobsters, particularly guys like Vito Genovese and Albert Anastasia. Uh, they, at that period in time now, with the coal mines, uh, you know, the coal business basically was uh, going the way of the dinosaur, and now the uh, garment manufacturing business was becoming the preeminent industry in that region. And he, and many women, you know, 
old women, young kids would be working for these mob-controlled garment industries. And so he became a major force in the garment industry. In the late 1940s, he meets a young Teamster organizer by the name of Jimmy Hoffa, who's in Detroit. And Russell sends his cousin William, who's an attorney from Scranton, to go work with Hoffa, which was a brilliant stroke of genius, given what Hoffa would do with the Teamsters in later years. Uh, so now as we get through the 1940s and into the 1950s, Buffalino is now becoming um, a major power within organized crime circles. By the 1950s, he's got ownership stakes in casinos in Cuba. He owns shrimping businesses there. Um, he owns a dog track. Uh, Cuba's a gold mine for the mob. Uh, that's been well documented. But he was one of those um, that had been feeding off of that, off of that gold mine. And so Buffalino, though, along with a lot of other organized crime figures, come to the forefront in a very public way in 1957 with the infamous mob meeting at Appalachian, New York, where the police happen upon it, and they uncover this meeting with all these different mobsters there, some of the biggest names in the country. It was Buffalino that organized that meeting. That's how powerful he was. Now he's on the radar of law enforcement. He had been before. FBI kind of had this top hoodlum program, so that there would be reports of Buffalino. But now everyone knew who he was. Now the government, now they're, now they're trying to deport him, claiming that he wasn't, you know, he had said he was born here when he wasn't. So thus begins a 14, 15 year effort to deport, to deport him. Buffalino's called to testify before different hearings, one of which I tell in the book with Bobby Kennedy. Um, and by the 1960s, he's a major player. Um, actually, by 1970, he's probably or arguably one of the most important mobsters in the country. When did uh, you, you write in the book that uh, J. Edgar Hoover, for the longest time, thought there was uh, no, he had long dismissed the notion of a national Italian crime syndicate that it even existed. When did, when did the federal government start looking into the mob? They started looking at them in the early 1950s, uh, only because they had to. Um, there was the Kefauver Commission in the early 1950s. Uh, and there's actually a long passage in the book. And I included it only because they talk about specifically Northeast Pennsylvania and everything that was going on there. And so, but they really didn't pay attention to them. They had to pay attention to them uh, come Appalachian because that is where you've got mobsters from New York, everywhere, New York, Detroit, Buffalo, Chicago, Miami, Los Angeles. They all came upon this estate in Bing near Binghamton, New York, uh, to discuss mob business. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover uh, thought of the mob as guys who basically ran numbers, you know, gambling, you know, prostitution, you know, kind of vices that he didn't really want to deal with. He wanted to put the FBI's attention on other things. Uh, but once Appalachian happened, he had to pay attention. How did, uh, how did Russell Buffalino operate? I mean, how did he decide what to get into? How did he manage his staff? How big, a, how big an empire was it? The Buffalino family, per se, was small. I think in its best day, they didn't have more than 50 members. But he had businesses. Now, he lived in Kingston, Pennsylvania, which was another stroke of genius because Law enforcement didn't think that anyone that hailed from Kingston, Pennsylvania could be important. 
no disrespect to Kingston, Pennsylvania or the Scranton area, but when you're considering mobsters in New York and in Chicago and Philadelphia, Kingston just, you know, didn't, wasn't doing anything for them. But Russell would spend half his time in New York. He had a restaurant in Midtown Manhattan, Vesuvio, and he would conduct business there. He would go to Philadelphia and he would conduct business there. So he had a very close circle of underlings, one of which was James Ostico, the fellow we mentioned earlier, who was known as Dave Ostico in the Scranton area, but and the guy that fixed the Naples trial, um, and a couple of other guys. And later on in the 70s, Billy D'Elia um, would become one of his top, I think one of his top lieutenants. So it was a very small circle, but he had, and, and a lot of my, and what was really interesting is that a lot of the mob guys on the street, like in New York or whatever, didn't know about him. The most powerful guys did. So when he would go to New York and the FBI would be watching his restaurant and they'd see him meeting with some of the top New York mob guys, they would be paying homage to Buffalino. And always, they would, they would, they would you know, it was interesting when I was told this story. And they, they, they didn't know what to make of it. And the same thing in Philadelphia. Um, with the Bruno family, they would be deferential to Buffalino. So it didn't make sense. Buffalino's strength came initially through the garment industry, then through what was going on with Cuba, but chiefly it was with Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters. He was very close with Jimmy Hoffa, and again, he had his cousin William uh, working with Hoffa, and he later became the Teamsters' chief counsel. So Russell not only knows everything that's going on with the Teamsters, He's profiting, he's profiting handsomely from the Teamsters, particularly with the pension loans that had been given out. How'd that work out? How did he make money off the Teamsters? You get a, you get a piece of it. You know, if there was a $20 million loan, he'd get 10% or 5%. And it was just, you know, let's give this business a loan, let's give this business a loan, let's give this individual a loan, let's pump, you know, $500 million into Las Vegas. He would get a piece of that. So it was very, very lucrative. You say in here, by the late 1960s, Buffalino's legitimate business interests included junkyards, garment factories, and local hotels, including a Howard Johnson's, and he took a cut, usually 10%, from anyone who sought to set up a business within his geographical home base. So if you wanted to go and open a business in northeast Pennsylvania, you had to pay him a piece of the action? You had to. If you, you could do it without him. I mean, if you went to a bank and opened a business, yeah, if it was a, a successful business, Often you might have a couple of guys come knock on your door and they, you know, hey, you need protection or you need this or whatever. They find a way to get some money out of it. Uh, Pocono Raceway, I tell about po Pocono Raceway in the Poconos, which is a famous NASCAR track today. They were near bankruptcy in the mid-1970s. And it was Buffalino, uh, Buffalino money that saved them. And that was a story I got from someone that was directly part of it. Uh, so... That's how powerful he was, you know, within Northeast PA. I mean, he was the ultimate power, but he was also, like Louis de Naples is today, a philanthropist. And he would give money to this organization or that organization. So in one sense, you know, law enforcement is watching him and keeping tabs on him. Uh, and they didn't even know what they had in there, uh, what they had there in terms of just how powerful he was. And on the other hand, he's, and I tell another story, you know, Buffalino's sending a couple of guys to go help a neighbor, an elderly neighbor who's trying to fix a roof on a hot summer day. A couple of guys come by and says, Mr. Buffalino says you shouldn't be working today. 
we'll do it. Can you talk a little more about Cuba? Because you say in the book that when Buffalino left, when Castro took over Cuba, he buried a million dollars in the ground. He, Russell, as I said earlier, had businesses in Cuba, uh, as did most other mafia leaders. It was a cash cow. Uh, it was uh, as busy then as Las Vegas is today. Uh, only for the mob, they were getting a major piece of it. It was their businesses. So Buffalino developed a friendship with uh, Fulgencio Batista, who was the Cuban dictator. And by the mid-1950s, Russell's got slices of different casinos, and he's getting income from that, uh, as well as, I said, the other business he had. When Castro began his revolution, the mob guys were backing Batista and running guns to him. And this is actually in some of the FBI reports. Uh, when it became clear that Castro was going to win, they then su began supplying arms to Castro with the understanding that they would be able to keep their businesses once he took over the government. Well, of course, when he took over the government, he chased them all out. And as Buffalino was leaving, he buried a million dollars. Uh, literally buried? Li literally, literally buried. It was upwards of a million dollars. And they had two other guys that were involved in it. They, was, they were later executed, those two guys, within, I guess, next five, ten years. But... Um, and then fled on a boat, just like all these other guys. Um, so it was, so that story ended up getting around. And then the CIA, um, in its infinite wisdom, and they admitted to this in the mid-1970s, decides they're going to enlist some of these mafia leaders to help them in their attempts to assassinate Castro. And Buffalino is one of the guys that's recruited. Uh, and he was recruited, and this doesn't come out until years later, by Jimmy Hoffa. So Buffalino's ties to Cuba were extensive. They were real. Um, they had been lucrative. And like many other mob leaders, he was furious um, that he had lost it. And, and the CIA and the mob worked together to, on the Bay of Pigs invasion? They enlisted the mob. There was a... a an investigation in the mid-1970s, the Church Committee. It was a Senate investigative committee that was looking into the CIA's efforts to dispose of foreign leaders. And it was through this investigation, and the CIA admitted it, that they had recruited members of organized crime in the U.S. to help them with Cuba. And that included the Bay of Pigs, that included assassinating Fidel Castro. CIA was this rogue agency. They had no oversight. No one was paying attention. No one could pay attention to them, you know. Um, so they, for whatever reason, decided this was a good idea. Now, then they later said that they really didn't get much intelligence from the mob guys, and it was really, it wasn't a big deal, but it was a far bigger deal than they, than they um, had, admitted to, had admitted to. So um, it was a handful of mafia leaders. Uh, it included... Sam Giancana from Chicago. It included Johnny Roselli from Los Angeles. Um, it included Buffalino and, and two of his guys, the two guys that had buried the money with him, um, who, who uh, were subsequently killed within, I guess, 10 years after that. And so um, what, when, that, when, when Buffalino's name, Buffalino's name is then published in Time Magazine as relates to this investigation, 
and it's the first time he's outed as being part of the CIA mafia plots. That's what ultimately led to the demise of Jimmy Hoffa, as well as the murders of uh, Sam Giancana and Johnny Roselli. What was Russell Buffalino's involvement in the killing of Jimmy Hoffa? In 2004, uh, one of his, he had a henchman, uh, a hitman, a guy by the name of Frank Sheeran. And he had admitted uh, that he had killed Hoffa. And it was in a book. It was in a, it was in a, uh, and he details how he did it. And that Buffalino was the one that ordered it. Now, the author of that book, his name is Charlie Brandt. I had spoken to him after the Naples had, and uh, his priest, Father Sika, had been indicted in 2008 for lying to the gaming board about their ties to Russell Buffalino. Now, Charlie's book, uh, it was a one-source book. It was based on the word of Frank Sheeran. So Charlie was curious whether or not there was another credible source out there that would back up Sheeran's claim, because he, he hadn't found one. Um, so during my reporting and my sourcing, I'm told that it was credible. I was told that some of the details in the book um, were inaccurate, but the basic premise that Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa under Buffalino's orders was accurate. In the book, it says because when Hoffa... Hoff had gone to prison in the 60s, he's out of prison, he's told he can't run for presidency of Teamsters, he does it anyway. The mob is now operating at high speed with the Teamsters um, under Frank Fitzsimmons. And they now also, they now have ties all the way up to the presidency. So they've got, you know, they've got the support of the White House, the Teamsters do. They've got Las Vegas going. It, it's, they're doing incredible business. They didn't want Hoffa getting involved in muddying up the works. They had a good thing going. Hoffa insisted on trying to regain the presidency. He infuriated mob leaders to the point where they wanted him dead. It was Buffalino who kept them alive because of their close and longstanding ties. When this Time Magazine article appeared in June of 1975, for Buffalino, that was it. All bets were off. Now he has to protect himself. So he puts into, into motion a plan where two weeks after... Um, the Time Magazine article comes out about him, the CIA plots in the Senate investigation. Sam Giancana is killed in Chicago. Four weeks later, Jimmy Hoff is murdered and is never seen again. And then the following summer, Johnny Roselli is killed. Those were the three remaining members or participants in the CIA mafia plots. And Buffalino was uh, insul ins insulating himself. There was one of the prosecutors who prosecuted Buffalino back in the late 1970s told me that he had this saying, it was actually in a plaque, there is no conspiracy when only one remains. So with the CIA mafia plots, he was the only one remaining. So he would sometimes pick up the phone and say, oh, have this guy killed? Well, I don't know how he did it. but I mean, he would directly he, order people to be killed. Frank, Sh oh, yeah, oh, yeah. No, he was, a, yeah, he was, um, that's what mob guys do, <laughs> especially guys of his ilk. You know, they'll, um, I don't think he was a killer per se in terms of just indiscriminately killing people. It had to be for a reason. Uh, and in this case, it was to protect himself. Did you visit the house he lived in? Did, like, I did. What's, what's the street like? It's a, you know, it's a normal middle-class block. It's a, it's a ranch-style house. Um, as it turns out, after his wife passed away a few years ago, she willed it to the son of Billy D'Elia, whose name is Russell. So Russell D'Elia now lives in the house, and when Billy D'Elia got out of prison last year, he had Thanksgiving 
at the Buffalino House. So it's very modest. I mean, you would never, ever, ever dream that a major mob figure had been living in this house. Did he ever have any kids? No. No, he didn't. He, he and his wife had been married for what, late 1920s, I think it was, until his death. Would you tell the story about the involvement with Russellina, uh, Russell Buffalino and the making of the movie The Godfather? That was interesting. Um, the Godfather production, they were having issues with members of organized crime. They remember, you have to remember, or if you don't, you know, um, that organized crime had its hands in a lot of different businesses, one of which was filmmaking. And so they had issues with the, with the movie itself. They thought it was going to be just another one of these shoot them up, everyone dies kind of bloodfests that Hollywood was putting out at that time. And so they protested against the movie. And um, ultimately, Buffalino had stepped in uh, and gave his okay to it. And to the point where his associates and people he was familiar with end up getting roles in it. You know, including, it was one major role, the guy who played, um, I think it's Salazzo. He's the one that, um, he's the guy that wants to do business with the Colleones and introduce drugs, and Marlon Brando says no. So he's a mobster in real life? He's a mob, he was a member of the Genovese family. <laughs> he came back, became an actor. Um, uh, the guy who played uh, Luca Brasi was a member of one of the mob families at the time. And Buffalino even visited with Marlon Brando on the set and would talk about his deportation problems. I want to read you that. You said, Buffalino bought into The Godfather and he spent time with Marlon Brando inside his trailer in Lower Manhattan's Little Italy neighborhood, complaining about his deportation case while giving him a few pointers on mob etiquette. I had, you know, it's funny because I, before I had begun, I had heard of Buffalino, just little bits of him from other stories I had covered. I didn't know about him, though. I just heard little bits. And one of the things I had, I had heard, it was just a whisper, was that the Marlon Brando character was a takeoff on Russell Buffalino. And I was like, you know, I remember thinking at the time, this was like 10 years ago, because I was doing something that, in fact, that involved some folks up in Northeast PA. And it didn't make much sense to me, but I remember, I remember hearing that, because there was something that had been going around. Um, and then I heard it more and more as I got into the story. And apparently the story is, is that Marlon Brando did do a takeoff on Russell Buffalino in The Godfather. That's who he emulated. And I thought that, you know, that was one of those wow moments in, in doing this. And you, you say that uh, Russell Buffalino was instrumental in Al Martino, the singer, getting the, the singer role. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great story. Um, he's, he played the Frank Sinatra character uh, in the movie. And he was actually, Buffalino was his godfather. And so Al Martino, literally his, literally his godfather. godfather. Martino couldn't get the role. Um, Francis Ford Coppola didn't want him. He wanted somebody else to play that role. Vic Damone. Right, exactly. And so Martino went to great lengths to try to convince Coppola to let him do it, including hosting a party in Vegas, a very expensive one. Coppola said no. So he went to Buffalino, and a week later he got the role. Why did Russell Buffalino think the movie was okay to make when the rest of the mob leaders thought it was not? I mean, that movie's a classic. And it's less about gangsters and more about a corporate family. Um, I mean, that movie was revolutionary. Um, it wasn't, you know, the same Valentine's Day massacre. 
you know, a bunch of bad guys shooting people up and blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, it was, um, it was funny. Um, it was, you know, it touched on family. It touched on um, a variety of things that had never been touched on before in a movie. And, you know, there were tales of mob guys seeing that movie and they actually felt emboldened. I mean, wow, I want to do this. You know, I want to be mob guys. This is, wow, I want to do this. This is great. You know, I want to be, uh, I want to be Sonny or I want to be this one. So it was very, it was, it was very, it was a groundbreaking movie in a lot of ways at the time. Actually, it still is today. I mean, it's on TV every month and people continue to watch it. So it was a new, it was a new um, and very fresh look at organized crime and the reasons why, you know, you know, Marlon Brando says, I don't ever, there's a, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I'm not going to, um, apologize for how I make my living. You know, this is how I do it. And, you know, he got involved. He didn't want to get involved in drugs. He didn't want to get involved. He just did gambling and prostitution, and he had different politicians in his pocket. And he talks about if I did get involved in drugs, I wouldn't have these politicians. So, all right, you got a mobster with a conscience now. So it was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. What was Russell Buffalino's day job? I mean, what, what was his cover as his legitimate business? He just had, well, he had different businesses. He had... Um, uh, clothing businesses, you know, he'd be uh, an official with uh, different garment garment factories. Um, his real businesses, though, were behind the scenes where he had he wouldn't be the front man for it. Like there's this one company up there, Medico Industries, which produced um, bombs and ammunition during the Vietnam War. They got government contracts through Buffalino, and the word was was that Buffalino was one of the partners in Medico. And that was the Dan Flood connection. Correct. Also, right? What was the, can you explain that? Well, this goes back, we talked about earlier Lewis de Naples and his um, political associations, and you just have to go back to Buffalino and how he did it, and he developed a very close relationship with a congressman up there named Daniel Flood, who was a interesting character. He had a handlebar mustache, and he quoted Shakespeare, and he was also behind the scenes, probably one of the dirtiest politicians you'd ever find. And he would be delivering all kinds of contracts um, for that region, um, as well as for Buffalino. So Buffalino, and he became the, the chairman of the Appropriations Committee in Washington, the House Appropriations Committee, which was a powerful uh, position to be in. So think about it. You're a mob leader, and your <laughs> chief political contact is now the, the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee. So, I mean, that's a nice pet to have. So um, Buffalino ultimately... Um, was arrested, and he was charged. There had been stories about him and his ties to Russell Buffalino. I believe he ultimately was found guilty of something else, but his career was over by, by the late 1970s. How did Ruff Russell Buffalino get in trouble with the, the law? When Jimmy Hoffa disappeared, the FBI, eventually, they had put 200 agents on the case. Within a year or two, they circled around a handful of suspects, including Buffalino and Frank Sheeran. So they knew that it was Buffalino that did it. They just couldn't prove it. So this is what they do. This is what law enforcement does. Um, they go after you for something else. And in Buffalino's case, they got him on tape threatening some nobody over a $25,000 jewelry heist. He apparently took some jewelries, took some jewelry, went to sell it, or something to that effect, claimed he was with Buffalino, bounced a check, and Buffalino found out about it. And it wasn't a big deal. It was really minor. 
But because this guy, his name was Jack Napoli, ended up running to the feds because he thought that Buffalino was going to kill him over it, and he wore a wire, they got Russell talking about how he was going to kill this guy if he didn't get um, made good for this $25,000 check that he apparently wrote for something. And so they charged him with that. He did some prison time. But while he was in prison, he's conspiring to kill the same guy. He's really ticked off. And as soon as he gets out of prison, he's charged in the early 1980s with conspiring to murder this guy, Jack Napoli. So effectively, he spent the last, he was released in prison in the late 1980s uh, on a medical. So from the late 1970s to 19, he spent the last 10, 10, 12 years of his life in prison. And then he ended up in a nursing home. And he was 93 years old when he died in 1994. Died of natural causes. He died of natural causes. And, and the great scene that was given to me was that while he was in the nursing home, people would come visit him and they would kiss his feet. Now, you've been on this program twice before for, for uh, other books you've written on similar Pennsylvania topics. What's next? Uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to take a break. I'm now, I left the morning call in 2010, and I'm now a financial writer. I cover Wall Street and regulatory issues in Washington. For who? Uh, a company called Harrison Scott Publications. It's a very unique niche publisher, and they hire reporters like myself from other newspapers, such as the New York Daily News and the Newark Star-Ledger, and we have to come up with, we have to report on issues and stories ahead of the New York Times, head of the Wall Street Journal. So it's very, it's very intense, but it's very satisfying. Well, if you write another book like this, get in touch. This is a, <laughs> we, I wish we had more time to talk about it. This is a fascinating book, The Quiet Don, The Untold Story of Mafia Kingpin Russell Buffalino. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.